This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, Tony Hawk, the most iconic skateboarder of all time, Hawk has pushed the limits of action sports. How did landing that change your life? People would stop me on the street in airports. You're the guy, 900. Like, how do you even know what 900 is? I went to California to meet up with Hawk back in 2012, where he opened up about his quest to be the best. If I didn't perform at my top level, and even if I won the event, I would walk away disappointed. Revealed the struggles he faced along the way. I was eating Top Ramen and Taco Bell and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a good two years. It explained how a video game changed his life. I actually had moms come up to me and say, I didn't know Tony Hawk was a real person. I thought it was just the name of a video game character. But we get started talking about the bumps and bruises he's gotten throughout his career. Your worst injury to date? Uh, my worst what? injury was broken pelvis. Uh, November 2003. Take me through what happened. Uh, it was probably the worst skating day ever. We did a five-week U.S. tour, and I was invited to participate in um, in Wild Boys, which is basically a Jackass spinoff. Okay. A couple of the guys in Jackass. Was were that doing, like Steve-O and? It was Steve-O and Chris Pontius, okay. and they were doing. It was more animal-oriented. And they said, we have this chimp that can skate. And do you guys want to skate with this chimp at um, Bob Burnquist, who is a, a fellow pro, at his house? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll take my kids and see the skating chimp. Right. And so we wore um, chimp costumes, and we were skating. <laughs> and Bob has, uh, Bob has a loop ramp, which is you know, basically a full 360. You go all the way upside down, like a roller coaster, right. um, which is something that we had uh, on our tour. We had a loop ramp on our tour. We were doing it every night. It was almost like we took it for granted. We were so cocky with it. It, was, it became easy. So it became just sort of this, this easy thing for us. The problem was Bob has this loop that's been out in the weather for years. No one rides it because it's frightening to learn how to do it. And so it's just different than the one that we were skating. And as we were skating and doing the stuff through the day, he said, hey, we should do the loop. I said, yeah, let's do it. And I should have known because my first attempt, I started coming off the wall about at 12 o'clock and just fell and knee slid my way through it. And it would, the problem was the starting ramp was too slow. And so I tried to overcompensate on the starting ramp and that sent me into sort of a wrong position for the loop. And I ended up shooting out immediately at the loop and flying through the middle of it, landing on my, on my hip and on my head Fractured skull, broken pelvis, broken thumb, knocked out, woke up in the ambulance, um, and realized that I should not take the loop for granted. That one was pretty ugly and definitely life-threatening. I hit my head really hard. Okay. And so um, it took me a full year to gain my confidence back of tricks that I used to take for granted. Why? Um, because you, you just feel so fragile and you feel like, oh, maybe I'll fall. What if I hit? What if I hit my hip again? What if I knock this loose? And every time that I would hit my, my hip or my leg at all during that time, I could feel the shift in there because the, the, the fracture was, was so deep that I could sort of feel that mm. movement. And it just, it just gave me pause. Um, it took me a long time before I did 900s again, I'll tell you that. Do you wonder even if you feel fine now, you know, 10, years down the line is the age if you're gonna I do really... I, yeah a little bit but to be honest I've noticed that just staying active is what has kept me the the most limber and the most healthy um, if I take any time off for whatever reason even if it's an injury or if it's just for 
for family purposes, getting back is, is much harder to do and, and getting in that groove and, and feeling like I can handle that sort of endurance. The first time you went to a skate park, you said was really the first time you kind of felt content as a kid. Well, when I was skating and, you know, I would see skate magazines and I'd see the guys going down the, going down the street and things. And so I knew there was potential. But when I went to the skate park the first time, I literally saw guys flying out of empty swimming pools. And, and I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to fly like that. I want to learn how, how, whatever they're doing right there. That's what I want to do. And I took every step towards doing that. Uh, in high school, how much did you get picked on? Uh, in high school, my early years, I mean, that's, that was my existence, was just getting picked on for being too small, for being a skater, for being scrawny, for being nerdy. You know, it was like I was, I was in the advanced placement classes, so I was already a nerd. Um, I skated, which was even like lower on the totem pole of cool back then. So I just had three strikes against me. I was tiny. And so uh, I, uh, I just was a, kind of a ghost. What would the guys do to you? Oh, they would just like sometimes just pick me out, swing me around, um, just start yelling skater. It was really embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, and definitely um, put a damper on any chances I had with girls at the time. At, at the time in your life where you believe you were the best you've ever been, how much would you practice in an average day? My teenage years, I spent the majority of the day at the skate park. I mean, I'd get out of school and I would go straight there and I'd be there until at least dark, if not later. So I was skating a good three to four hours a day, probably five days a week. Somebody close to you said that when you were coming up, you were really never satisfied with yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, how true? I think that's very true. I, I, I put high expectations on myself when I was young. I still do. Um, and if I didn't meet those expectations, I was always disappointed. And I think that's what helped me in my competitive career because when I would compete, um, if I performed at my best, I was happy. And it didn't really matter how I placed because I knew that was the best I could do. If I didn't perform at my top level, and even if I won the event, I would walk away disappointed. Really? Yeah, and, and having that drive to, to, to want to do it perfectly or the best that I could, definitely kept me ahead of the competition for a lot of years because it was I was striving to get better for myself not that I was striving to get better than my competitors how much would you obsess almost over oh that's all I would think about that's all if, if, I, if there was something I really wanted to do it, it consumed my mind and if it was something that I that I was not um, successful at then I would be probably just frustrated through the day, you know, like someone who didn't get their cup of coffee or whatever it was, just, it was always nagging at me and, and it would, uh, a lot of plans would fall by the wayside because I had to get back out there and skate and try it. I read your autobiography and there were some funny, uh, funny stories in the book and I just wanted to run through uh, some of the moments and get you to kind of recall the story. <laughs> okay. Uh, the spaghetti at the hotel restaurant in Brazil. Oh. The first time I went to Brazil, we were staying in a pretty sketchy area in Sao Paulo uh, in a hotel that basically locked their doors at 10 p.m. so no one could get in or out because it was in such a bad area. And we didn't know our, uh, our handlers or the people that sent us there were, were kind of MIA for most of the day. So we were stuck in the hotel and 
So I went and got spaghetti at the hotel thinking that was perfectly fine and ended up getting the most violent food poisoning that I've ever had. Um, had to miss our first demo. Had to, and they, they requested that I get up in front of about 7,000 people and announce that I'm not gonna skate. And they all started chanting son of a bitch in, Portuguese, in, uh, <laughs> in Portuguese at me. <laughs> Which I didn't know what they were saying. Right. And then uh, the next day they, they realized it was so bad that they took me to a doctor, but just to this doctor that lived in an apartment, like to his house. And he gave me shots that I had no idea what they were, you know, and nor did I, was, was I in a state of mind to care? I was so out of it. And uh, he ended up giving me, I don't know what kind of shots he gave me, but he had dirty needles, so I got lockjaw. Um, so I had to uh, figure out how to deal with lockjaw for a couple days. And there was a press conference, wasn't there? There was a press conference that, that night, and my jaw would, would clench up sometimes, but then other times my, my, uh, my lips would sort of point upward like this. No control. So I'm doing these <laughs> interviews like this. I, have no, I don't know what was happening to me, physiology. Like, there's, it made no sense, <laughs> none of it. And then I learned later, like, you know, I, I was in a very dangerous situation to be getting lockjaw. Um, and I ended up performing that night, um, you know, in the middle of sort of this dream state that I was in. But it was the only time that I wasn't constantly vomiting. And I made it through. I remember the whole, the whole that whole day seemed like a dream. And everyone said I skated well. I don't remember any of it. You're in your early 20s. You're making six figures annually. You are the best skater you've ever been to date, making the most money you've ever made to date. Yet you were severely depressed. Um, in what ways? <clears throat> um, I was, I, I, my depression, it wasn't that I was depressed. I was, I was disheartened with competition. The only way that you really were recognized as a skater then was your, com your competitive record. And mine was stellar. Mine was, I mean, I was winning most of the events. Um, I think I won like 72 out of the 100 that I, that I entered at that time. Um, and so, but that became my existence and that became what everyone expected of me. And if, if I performed any less, if I, if I got second, then it, in their eyes I had failed, I had lost. And why did that bother you? Um, because it just didn't, it, it's And you not, say it became unbearable. Yeah, it just, be, because it took the fun out of it for me. It was more that I was just performing it to everyone else's expectations. And, and I wasn't really enjoying the process. You know, like my competitors would say, hey, look, I'm just hope I get second place. And, and to me, they just put me on this separate island that I didn't want to be on. I wanted to be, I wanted to have camaraderie. I wanted to, to be with those guys and skate with them and not be put on a pedestal. And, and, uh, and um, it's just hard. It's, it's like, it's uh, Rodney Mullen, who also went through a very similar thing. He was one of the top competitors in freestyle. He, he put it best when he says, it's like you, you were building this, this house for yourself. And instead of enjoying the house, all you do is, is sit around and protect it and not let anyone get in it. Um, you know, it's like a bad Kafka story or something. <laughs> you said you did a lot of like soul searching before you went and talked to your brother about how you were feeling at the time. What were you thinking about? I wanted to figure out how I could remove myself from competition and still be a pro skater. And that had not been done yet. Um, because if you're not going to compete, the, the magazines aren't going to cover you. 
Um, your sponsors are likely to drop you. And the kids who are buying your products are going to forget about you. Um, and there was no such thing as a video skater back then. That hadn't really come into play yet. Mm -hmm. um, there was no YouTube. You know, the skate videos were usually based on the, the best guys in the competitions. Um, and so I went and talked to Stacy. Uh, Who was your boss at the time? Stacy Peralta was my coach, and, and I actually had my brother come with me as backup. And he, you know, he approached Stacy and said, "Look, Tony's really having a problem with with the competitions. It's it's you know it's kind of wrecking him. It's it's ruining the fun of skating." Um, and I told him that, and, and so he said, "Well, you know, I understand. Maybe you might want to take a break, but don't give it up completely." Because you may want to come back, you may, you know, you may enjoy it, and I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain your career if you're not competing. And I did take a break. Um, I stopped competing for a while, almost a year, uh, maybe a little less. And when I came back to it, I came back with sort of a fresh perspective that I don't really care how it lays out. I'm going to go and do my best, and, and I'm going to take chances that I maybe hadn't taken before. And if that puts puts me in last place, then I. So be it. But if, if, it's, if I succeed, I'm going to be on this whole other level of skating. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. I mean, and the, the contest that I won then, I won by a long shot, you know, because I was doing stuff that was experimental and stuff that I wasn't really confident with, but, but I could pull it through somehow. And if it didn't happen, then I didn't do well at all. And, and I stopped caring about the end result so much. There was an enormous drop-off in the, the skating world, and I only bring this up for purposes of uh, just speaking to how big of a financial drop-off it was. I think when you were like 21 years old, you made something like $150,000. Speaking to the, the financial drop-off, year after that and the year after that, what, what did you make? Oh, I, I mean, every year after, let's see, when I was about uh, 22 years old, 21, every year my, my salary was, was being cut in half pretty much. Cut in um, half. Yeah, and in terms of board royalties or team salaries and things like that, um, the, the competitions were drying up, the prize money was getting smaller in those few competitions. Um, and it's not as if you were getting worse. I mean, you were continuing to improve. No, I was still, getting, yeah, I was still learning. I was still improving. Uh, how much of a financial bind did, did you put yourself in as the money began to kind of dry um, up? It was tricky. I, I was dealing with two mortgages. I was just starting a family. Um, and I was still trying to skate. And, you know, it was basically like doing everything I could to make skating a career still. Um, and uh, just, I really pulled back on all expenses, and I was eating, I was eating Top Ramen and Taco Bell and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a good two years. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, refinanced my house, sold it at a loss, uh, moved into my original house, my duplex that I grew up, that I was, you know, uh, living in in high school, and with a family now. Um, but at the same time, like. Even though I was making those adjustments, I never felt like I was struggling because I still got to skate for a living, you know. And, and that was the dream realized. I, and it's, it wasn't a dream that was necessarily available to us when I was younger. To dream about being the best skater in those days just meant that you got free gear and a sponsor. 
Right. But I mean, big change in lifestyle for you at the time. Big I mean, change in were, lifestyle for sure. And, and I, I think your, your wife, your then wife, was a manicurist. And yeah. uh, at one point, she, she started making yeah. more money than yeah, you. Sure. I, I think you briefly considered taking a job in computer programming. What was, what was the lowest point of that time? I think the, the lowest point in that time for me was uh, agreeing to do exhibitions in amusement park parking lots for $100 a day, um, three shows a day, and traveling to St. Louis or to Dallas to go do that um, and staying there for five days to do that. I mean, that was literally just to pay the bills because it wasn't something I was necessarily enjoying. Um, the ramp was not amazing. <laughs> you know, the, the setup was not amazing. We were treated like sort of the bastard children of the amusement park, first of all. And um, sleeping many to a hotel, four people to a hotel room. Yeah. Um, and so I, it wasn't like I, it, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to explain. Like, I still love that I got to skate. That was it. You know, and, and that that's what I had to do. And you end up making an interesting move because here, here you are. Uh, you're essentially on the other side of broke skateboarding or skating is a career looks like or the sport just kind of looks like it's uh, going under sponsorships are going away. Why decide to start your own company uh, amid all of that? Um, I wanted to continue to be in the skate industry and I wanted to do something on my own. The, the skate companies um, at that time, they started shifting their their direction and their marketing. And it was more about, it was less about look at how good our skaters are. It was more about look how lame all you other companies are. Hmm. And I thought, why can't we just promote good skating? And I decided that's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna create my own team. So I handpicked some of the best riders then and said, look, we're gonna make this thing. It's not what everyone else is doing. It's gonna be based on, we're gonna highlight you guys and your amazing skills and not worry about what everyone else is doing. Um, and so that's when I took my biggest risk, for sure. I, I, pretty much all the money I had saved at the time, I dumped into starting a company. And you created the company uh, Birdhouse. Birdhouse Skateboards, uh, yeah. How personally gratifying was it the first time the company actually made a profit? <laughs> um, to be honest, uh, the company struggled for about two years, and we almost gave up twice. Um, there was a time when my partner and I both said, we may have to just throw in the towel. This isn't, this isn't work. We're barely covering salaries. In 1995, the first X Games happened, and it was very strange and experimental and a little disjointed. You know, it was like we were highlighted with bungee jumping and sky surfing and skateboarding. I, I didn't know what the connection was, but mm -hmm. they said it was extreme. So. Right. Okay, whatever, whatever it takes to be, you know, back in competition. That was fine with me, and and I and I got back in. I, I started competing again. Um, the very next year of X Games is when we saw Birdhouse start to take off, and that was the moment of validation for us both. We're like, we endured this because we believed in it, and we we hoped and almost expected skating to come back and to come back in full swing, but we thought it would happen sooner. And now we're on top because, you know, we, we have one of the best teams. We had placed ourselves at a, as a brand at a time when skating was very small. So it, was, it wasn't hard to get noticed. And then as skating came back in the upswing, we were sitting on top because we had established ourselves there. We're doing the interview from 
your offices. What, what's housed in this building? Uh, well, this building uh, is, this is Tony Hawk Incorporated. It houses Birdhouse Skateboards, um, Tony Hawk Foundation, our foundation for public skate parks, uh -huh. uh, TH Events, which we do exhibitions. We do the Boom Boom Huck Jam Tour. Um, we do, you know, this, this ramp is portable. We take it around the world and, and skate on it for big crowds. Um, we have 900 Films, which does film production. Um, we have our own YouTube channel, Ride Channel, uh, which is all skate content. And uh, other than that, a lot of design and a lot of um, scheduling here. Uh, you own companies that market clothes, shoes, films, skateboards, gear, events. You're involved in retail, video games, uh, obviously. How about the work that is most personally satisfying that your businesses do? The stuff that I, that I is closest to my heart is, is doing the foundation um, for public skate parks. And um, basically, we try to help to fund public skate parks in low-income areas where there's a lot of at-risk youth that maybe don't have much outlets for, for activities, um, but choose to skateboard and, and don't have many support in doing so. Um, and there are way more than people imagine. You know, people uh, choose to skate everywhere. And so our foundation gives communities resources and funding um, and, and the tools to get a park going in their, in their area. And uh, to date, we've given away over $4 million. We've helped to fund over 500 skate parks. And um, going to the old grand openings that I, I've only attended a, a number of them, like a handful of them, but um, seeing the faces and seeing the, the excitement and the, the validation of their own efforts, because we try to empower the communities that have already got the ball rolling. It's not like we just wave a magic wand and decide which city gets a park. We actually want them to feel like they have ownership of it. Um, and to go to the grand openings and see the faces of the kids, is, that's the best. How did the video game franchise impact your success? Um, video games changed my life, uh, no question. You know, they, they brought me a level of success that I never dreamed possible. Um, in any chosen uh, field, <laughs> you know, I just never thought that I could have skating resonate so far and with so much reach through through something like that. Um, I'm extremely proud of it. You know, I, I worked very hard on on it, and I wanted to make it authentic and make it fun to play. Being a video gamer as well, I knew what would be fun to play in video games as well as what would be fun for skaters. And uh, you know. I got so many different opportunities because of that, um, because of the success of it uh, in terms of endorsements and appearances and, and even just like name recognition. You know, I, I actually had moms come up to me and say, I didn't know Tony Hawk was a real person. I thought it was just the name of a video game character. My, my my little sister hates sports, and it was the only video game she used to want to play. Yeah, it's so uh, well. Yeah. I, like I said, I was really proud of our game, I, and honestly, I thought we just made a novelty game. I was I was excited to get to do a video game, but I thought it was something that that skaters would appreciate, and maybe be inspired to buy a video game console so they could play it, right. and that would be the end of it. So those were kind of your expectations preceding the release of the initial game. How, how, how would you put into context? the success of the franchise? Uh, the franchise, I mean, it sold over a billion dollars in, in units, in, or not units, but in, in sales. Um, it, uh, there was a point when, I think when we released our fourth game, the first 
and second and maybe third games were still in the top 10 <laughs> of sales. Um, and we were four years into it with our fourth game. Um, it was unbelievable. You know, it was just no, it was nothing I ever imagined. And I think I knew, I knew we were onto something when, as the game was starting to, to be released, um, there were a few friends of mine that were in the same boat where they loved skating, but they also were very much into video games. And I actually gave them advanced copies of it. And I was like, don't show anybody this, but here's the game. And obviously they didn't just keep it to themselves, but showed others. And it became known as, in the skate industry, it became known as the game. Hmm. Have you played the game? That's all, you know, that, the, and, and to, have, uh, to have it re referred to like that, I knew we had something pretty big because those guys knew video games as well as skating. Activision offered you a, a buyout at some yeah. point that would have enabled them to use your name and likeness in conjunction with the game for perpetuity. Yeah. Explain the thinking that went into the decision you made on that front. Um, you know, I don't, I don't remember the exact details of that, but I do remember my <laughs> agent calling me at the time. Heck, heck, heck of a move looking back. But it was yeah, a gamble. well, my agent called me at the time and they said, hey, Activision is, is offering to, to, for a buyout of advanced royalties and, and whatnot if you, if you want money right now. And I think it was, I want to say it was $100,000, but I think it was less. And I said, well, what's the advantage of that? And he said, well, if you don't want to, if you don't want to take a gamble that the game doesn't do well, you know, this could be a lot of money if it doesn't sell that much. And I had just bought a new house. Um, I was doing pretty well with Birdhouse. Uh, you know, I was comfortable. I wasn't struggling. And I said, I want to ride it out. I believe in this. You know, I put my, I put my heart and soul into this thing and, and I really want to see what happens with it. He said, okay, it's just, you know, if maybe you need some money right now. If you, I don't know if you're buying another house or whatever. I just bought a house. And because and I could tell he was kind of leaning towards getting the money. Hmm. And I said, I, I really don't want to do that yet. And uh, I mean, thank God I didn't do that. Does the agent still get the percentage <laughs> of the royalty? No, now? he left that agency not long after that. I, didn't hear from <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he was pushed out, but... <laughs> We stopped working together. Um, they'd send you a game apparently every few weeks or a new updated version of it when they were in the process of designing it. How would you contribute to that process? Um, I would play the game every probably two weeks. I would get a, the version they're working on and I would just play it as much as I possibly could and, and give them suggestions for this trick should look more like this. Um, this challenge should be different. Uh, you know, this, this guy doesn't look this way or, or this spot should be included. It was all very um, detail-oriented. Um, you know, I wasn't a programmer or anything, but I definitely wanted it to feel right and, and feel authentic. Uh, retirement from competition. Uh, you said, quote, I don't want all the pressure of competing anymore, all the scrutiny. When I decided to stop competing, it was 1999. I had done it for 20 years of my life. Um, and it basically was my existence. Uh, in 1999, I, I pretty much decided at the beginning of the year that was going to be my last year of competition. And then the X Games, I did the first 900. I had probably one of my best years in terms of other competitions, uh, you know, across the board. And I thought, that's it. That, that, that was a good out. <laughs> that's a good end to the competition. And the hardest thing was that because I left on such a high note, all people thought was that I was leaving completely. I was retiring. And that was the hardest, 
stigma, that was the hardest title to, to defend because people say, you retired. Well, no, I'm not retiring. I'm just doing all these other things that I can do now with my schedule because I'm not chasing these competition points all year. Well, and then it's different if you're a baseball player or it's a football way, it's player. It's way different. And, and in skateboarding... Because you, you can retire, just to make the distinction, you can retire from competition, but you can still skate in yeah, exhibitions and, and, and skate all the time. And be more successful. Right. Um, Whereas if you retire from baseball or football, that, that's, that's it. it. You're, not, you're not playing pickup games right. down the street. Right. At 18 years old, you were quoted as saying, maybe you could see yourself doing it for another five years. <laughs> what do you think changed? Um, well, the, the idea that you had to quit skating into your adult life was always put on us because of the, the generation before us. They had to quit because they weren't able to make a living at it. So once they reached an age of responsibility, they had to get jobs, you know? Skating was not gonna provide for them. Um, when I was in my 20s, skating started to take a dive and I realized, well, that's the position I'm in. I'm not gonna be able to do this into my adult life because I can't, I can't make a living at it and I'm gonna have to do something else. And that's when I started doing video editing um, on the side, sort of freelance. Um, as skating came back in a big way, in its biggest way in the late 90s, I was still actively doing it. Um, I was starting to compete. I did really well. I, uh, I realized I could do this into my adult life because the opportunity was there. And I think that's what changed is, is the opportunity. The uh, most satisfying moment from your professional uh, skating career would be what? Uh, most satisfying moment was making 900 for sure because it was something that I wanted for so long and I had tried and failed for a good five years before I finally made one. And, and the fact that I made it in, in what then was the biggest venue um, on live TV, you know, that's not something that was ever in my head that I had to, I had to do it there, but the fact that it did work out there, um, it was a big deal. And I feel like it definitely raised the profile of skateboarding and action sports in general. Yeah, how would you best explain the, the significance of landing that trick? It was the culmination of a list of tricks that I always wanted to do in my lifetime that I thought were possible and stuff that I had been carving out. I'd been, you know, I'd check one off, I'd get this one. Okay, what's next? I wanna do this and eventually I'd get it. Um, 900 was, was a trick that I had been chasing, been trying, been, been you know, killing myself doing um, and never came through. And I had never, I had never tried a trick and failed at something for so long. 1986, the first time you tried the 900, then you don't try it again for another decade. The most challenging part of not only landing it, but perfecting the 900? Well, on a 540, you have, to, you have to be at least four or five feet above the ramp. On a 900, you've got to be more like six feet, unless you're able to spin amazingly fast. Um, but the thing about a 900 is, you're blind to your landing zone twice. And that doesn't mean you get to spot it halfway between. That just means you have to feel the spin in your body. It's like the sixth sense. You just have to know where you are in space without seeing it. Um, and that's the most challenging thing is to, is to commit yourself to that spin when you really have no idea how you're going to end up. That 12th attempt that you end up landing it at the X Games, take me through as much of that as you can recall. The event was the best trick event. We got 20 minutes to do whatever we could. Best trick, one trick, that's, that's all it takes. And my best trick 
at that time in my life was a Varial 720, which is basically a 720 spin with spinning the board an extra 180, which means the board does a 900 and your body does a 720. That was the best trick I knew. I'd only done it once in my life. And early in the event, I made, I made a Varial 7. That's my best trick. <laughs> Where do I go from here? And right. I thought, well, then I'll start trying 900. So that is the next best trick that I would like to do. It really, my intention was just to show the crowd, oh, this is, you know, one day this will happen. Um, and like I said, once I started spinning it, my spin was consistent. I was spotting the landing. Our time ran out. I didn't care. I just wanted to make the trick. I didn't care if it counted. You know, I was, this was my moment. This was, this was my focus. It was my obsession for so many years. Um, when I finally did make it and I was riding up the ramp, I really didn't believe that I made it. I was riding along the flat. I was on the next wall. And it wasn't until I looked up and saw my peers all rushing the ramp towards me that I realized that it actually had worked. Because my, I was, when I finally looked up, I wasn't facing the crowd. I was facing the people I was skating with or against. <laughs> and all of them were running towards me. And I thought, that's it. I really did it. It, it, it happened. I can't believe that, that that's it. And, and for me, it was this just, it was a huge relief. That, that was it. It was like, oh, it's done. Yeah, I don't have to do it anymore. It's over. <laughs> that trick, I could put it to bed. That yeah. was it. I didn't think of, you know, that people were watching it at home or that that was inspiring somehow. It was just like, oh, finally. Yeah, how did landing that change your life? Um, people would stop me on the street in airports and, and, and visibly be, be uh, excited you're the guy, 900. Like, how do you even know what 900 is? Right. Like this, you know, these people that are stopping me, they don't even know what skateboarding is all about. And they know what a 900 is. And, and you know, that, that was exciting to me, but I didn't realize how much resonance it had and that it inspired kids to pick up skateboarding. I mean, there were a lot of kids that told me they started skating the next day. That's amazing to me. I remember in your book, you talked about how, you know, before you did it, before you ended up actually successfully landing it, I forget the skater, but he called some of the leading skateboard photographers out, you know, saying he was going to do it on this day. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you said you would have been basically thrilled if he landed it. And I'm thinking when I'm reading this, what do you mean? You've been, you know, trying to make this happen for a decade. Well, and do you, it, don't you want to be the first? It, it was because the quest had gone on so long and we had been put through so much. Um, just in terms of, of exactly, I mean that's why you want to be first, right? I mean, yeah, so but like... still, but it, but there's also a mentality I think in, in in skating as well. If it has been done, it's much easier to get to, to for you to do it because you know it's possible. And as much as I love chasing a new thing and, and testing limits, if I know that someone's done it, it's it's a lot easier for me to go. Okay, let's make this one. This is possible. I'm capable of it. When a trick like that, that seems, that was such a milestone, the, you know, the top four or five best, most qualified guys to do it can't do it. You start to question, is it really possible? And that was, was what we were going through. And it was, it was like one of us had to just shake it up and say, it is possible. Here it is. I did it. You said something um, to, you know, paraphrasing, but to, to the effect of, it, it seemed as if every person in the world saw me land that 900, <laughs> except though the one person I most wanted to 
see oh, me landed yeah. in that being, um, you know, your late father. Yeah. Uh, to, to what extent did that get to you at the time? Um, well, my dad, my dad passed away in 1995. He was a huge proponent of, of skateboarding. He was always supportive of what I was doing. He helped to form the sanctioning body for skate events in the late 80s because no one else was taking the incentive to do that. Um, National Skateboard Association, which is now World Cup, which actually runs X Games events. Um, and uh, he saw the first X Games on TV in 1995. And for him, that was a huge moment that skateboarding was on ESPN. You know, they, they were giving it some, they were giving it some value, you know, they, and, and they were giving it some airtime. And, and he thought, wow, skating's really come of age. It's on ESPN, it's on, it's on network TV. Um, and for him, that was a big deal. And, uh, and he just never saw how big it got. And, you know, so much of it was because of his support. Um, and so the fact that he didn't get to see the X Games in 1999, that was, that was hard. I mean, how well do you recall the conversation you had with him when you were on the road touring and he was, you know, terminally ill with cancer? Um, well, I remember my brother was at a surf event in South Africa. Um, he was working for Surfer Magazine at the time. I was on tour in Europe, and he had just been diagnosed with, with terminal lung cancer. Um, and he told us both to, to just do our thing. Don't stop what we're doing for him. You know, he's going he's gonna to get through this however he can get through it, even if it means... Um, the worst ending, but don't stop our lives. Like he, he would feel bad if he made us stop what we were doing. Um, and so when we were home, we made time to be with him as much as possible. And then when things started looking really bad, um, I canceled the trip um, because, you know, it was just, I'm not going to go away. I'm not going to be on tour while my dad literally dies. What's being a father now taught you about your father? Um, how much, how important it is to be present and to, to be engaged, you know, in what your kids are doing. Not just because you're home or on your computer. That doesn't mean you're really with them and you're doing things with them, um, but to actually take interest and, and enjoy it and, and help if you can. Thanks for listening to my interview with skateboarding legend Tony Hawk. To check out more from our chat, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And one quick note before you leave, please consider giving the podcast a rating and review. Those go a really long way in helping us reach new listeners. Thanks again.